Morning, guys. Uh, the message this morning that Cohen's going to be bringing is going to be from Mark uh, chapter 9. It will be verses 42 through 50. Uh, it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eyes cause you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You can be seated. Thank you, worship team, and thank you, Brandon, very much. Well, as you saw, we're going to be in Mark 9, 42 through 50, so go ahead and be making your way there. And would you bow with me? I'd like to start off with prayer and ask for God's help for all of us this morning. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful to be able to teach this truth, but Lord, it is a weighty thing, Lord, that you've called me to, Lord, presenting the eternal truth of the eternal God to the ones whom you came to save and to the ones whom you are drawing to yourself who might not know you yet. Lord, I pray for help to do this this morning rightly with a healthy fear, but Lord, also with a healthy boldness. Lord, that is a balance that man cannot strike in and of himself, Lord, I need your grace to strike that balance rightly. Father, I pray also that you would give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are ready to receive the truth. Good soil so that when the seed is sown on it, it immediately begins to grow. That's going to come as we hold fast to the word, walk in obedience and perseverance. So please grant all these things, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in a section of Mark where Jesus is teaching his followers about real discipleship, as you might recall. The last two Sundays that we've been in Mark were about that as well. And for those of you who are guests with us, we're just walking through the book of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And this is where we find ourselves today in this section about real discipleship. Jesus has already taught his disciples about how to be truly great, since the disciples were arguing about who's the greatest. And he's covered the fact that other believers who were not a part of the 12, but also doing kingdom work, were in fact for Jesus and not against Jesus. So Jesus has also taught them about seeing fellow believers as companions and not as competition. In today's sermon, as you heard read to you already, 
Jesus is going to be discussing the seriousness of sin, and that's what I've titled the message this morning, The Seriousness of Sin. Now these nine verses, as you probably heard, take on a different feel and a different flavor than the two previous sections about discipleship. The mood becomes much more serious here as we hear Jesus talking about doing violence against oneself in order to prevent sin. The seriousness of judgment is also spoken of here as we hear the word hell mentioned three times. We're supposed to feel that shift in the mood in our text If you were there that day, you would have seen the earnestness in Jesus' face and you would have heard the sincere warning in his voice. You may have even been taken back by what Jesus said. But since Jesus said it, we know that, number one, we need to hear it. And number two, it's good for us. And number three, we need to understand it and also obey it, all because Jesus said it. As you'll see, I've broken up in the handout that you were given um, this morning. You'll see that I've uh, broken down the text for you, and you'll notice that verse 42, though it's connected to our topic, you'll see that it, it stands separate from verses 43 through 47, because in verse 42, Jesus takes sin seriously when it's caused by others in his people. Notice verse 42 is about those that are causing others to sin, but not just others. Jesus clarifies exactly who he's talking about, which will also connect what he's saying here to the two previous sections that we just have covered in weeks previous to this. Notice what Jesus says in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones... Who believe in me to sin. Now let's not forget the context. Two sections prior to this, we have Jesus taking up a little child into his arm and says that those who want to be great in the kingdom will care for such as these. And then in the more immediate section prior to this one, we have a believer, we don't learn his name. But we see what he's doing. He's casting out demons in Jesus' name. And Jesus says about him, whoever does a a mighty work in my name will not afterwards be able to speak evil of me. He was not against me, is for me. And so when Jesus says here, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, I believe Jesus is covering both of the types of people that he's just spoken to them about. Little one and a believer. But it's both. I don't think it's either or. I think it's both. It's little ones who believe in me, which covers really anyone who believes in him. Whoever causes a believer to fall into sin, Jesus shows us the the seriousness of that by telling us what would actually be better for an individual like that. And in doing so, he's trying to communicate the severity of such a crime. It would be better for him 
if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow. Again, this is all about the seriousness of sin. That's the main point here, the seriousness of sin when it's caused by others in the life of a believer and we're going to see in just a second your own sin that you cause in your own life. But to start off with, a millstone, in case you don't know what that is. Maybe some of the children don't. Maybe some of the adults don't. And that's okay. We don't usually, we don't really use these much anymore. A millstone was just that. It was a stone made into a circle, and it was anywhere from two feet wide to three feet wide usually, and it could be anywhere from five inches thick to maybe even 10 inches thick. It was housed on top of a stationary stone, and that circular stone was borne out in the middle, and there was, it was sat on another cylinder, usually wood, and then wood was attached to that top stone and moved in a circle, either by hand or by an animal for the very large ones. And some type of grain was put in the middle so that as they turned it, that grain made its way between those two stones. The stationary one on the bottom just sat there. The top one was spinning, 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 and it was grinding up all that grain and making flour. And that's how they made flour. You also see these used in Central America. That's how they grind up their corn and they make corn mill. You've heard of that. So this millstone, whether it's two feet wide or whether it's three feet wide, whether it's four inches thick or, or five or ten inches thick, whether it weighed 75 pounds or 175 pounds, you would not want it tied around your neck and then thrown overboard and you dragged to the bottom of the ocean with it. But Jesus actually said, I'm not going to tell you the other scenario just yet, but let me just tell you this. That would be better. This situation of you being pulled to the bottom of the ocean, that would be better for you than causing someone who believes in me to sin. So seriousness number one is causing others to sin. In Jesus' eyes, he says, I represent with, I am represented and I represent my people so closely that I'm telling you right now, I take sin very seriously in their lives. If someone was to cause a believer to sin, this would be a better scenario for you. Jesus is trying to show us how serious he takes sin. And then in verses 43 through 47, he's trying to now show us how seriously you need to take sin. But before we go to those verses, I want to point out that I think this portion of verse 42 that we heard is key, where he says those who believe in me. That's going to be key because otherwise you will read this and it will just almost kind of feel like a don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't, don't, don't. And rules like don'ts have motivating qualities. But when we see what's behind the don't, when we actually see something that's better, when I see a goal before me that this will hinder me from getting that goal, then I'm even more motivated. 
there are things that we're going to see that cause us to sin in this text. If this causes you to sin, if this causes you to sin. But did you know there's a cause behind the cause? If I have a desire to sin, that desire is coming from somewhere. It's a desire usually for a temporal pleasure, some sort of temporal something that makes my flesh feel good. That's really what's behind all of your sin. I'm doing this for me because it makes me momentarily happy, my flesh at least. But in the spirit, there's a greater joy that rises above the lusts of the flesh. And when we see that behind the sin, when we see that on the other side, this is, this, this is the temptation to sin creeping up, getting in the way of, of that great joy, the Lord Jesus, believing in him, he's behind my belief. He's the object of my belief. When I see sin rightly, then I am less tempted to do it because then I see it as actually keeping me from greatest joy. Like a bright light shining behind a black curtain. Take the black curtain away and then I can see all the light. So look what Jesus says about your own sin. Verse 42 is about others causing believers to sin. Now this is me causing me to sin. Look at verses 43 through 47. We're going to break this down. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life crippled than two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. I want you to notice the body parts he mentions. Do you see what they are? I've, I've, laid the, I've laid the text out for you this way on purpose so you can see these things clearly and so you can underline and circle things like I've done on mine as well. Notice verse 43, hand. Verse 45, foot. Verse 47, eye. Your hand represents what you do. Your foot represents where you go. Your eye represents what you see, what you take into your mind. What you do, where you go, what you see, or what you take in. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin. Remember in verse 43, if whoever, if this other person causes someone to sin, now he's saying, you, your own hand. If your own desire to do something, if it's there, cut it off. Now, is Jesus really, truly teaching self-mutilation? This is what we call figurative literal. Those who come on Wednesday nights, we're learning how to study our Bibles. We're learning that there are literal, and then there's also figurative literal in the Bible. This is something that's called a figurative literal because Jesus is literally wanting you to do 
violence against your own sin, but he's, he's speaking in a figurative way. How do we know that? How can we be sure of that? Well, because we measure Scripture against Scripture. We, we let Scripture interpret Scripture also. We know it's very clear from the Old Testament teachings that God was against and gave commands against self-mutilation. So Jesus, of course, would not ever teach anything contrary to what's already been laid down by the Lord in, in the law. He upholds the law. So he's not teaching true, real self-mutilation. Just like when Paul says, I buffet my body and make it my slave. Did he really meant he physically beats his body like Martin Luther did before he got saved? And he was one of the Augustinian monks. They found him in the floor of his cell one day because he had whipped himself so hard and so long trying to subdue the flesh. You cannot improve your body. I mean, you cannot improve your soul by harming your body. That's not actually the way it works. Jesus, however, is making a very strong point. And I think we get the point. If there's something that you are doing that is causing you to sin, because remember we're talking about the hand now in verse 43. This represents what we do. If there's something that you're doing that's causing you to sin, cut it off, he's saying. Cut it off. Is there something in your life, my life, this, this forces us to ask this question, doesn't it? This forces us to say, What's, what am I doing that's causing me to sin? Jesus is here making the point. Disciple, this is how discipleship works, first of all. You do violence against your sin. Why? Because Sin cannot represent your new life in Christ. As a follower of Jesus Christ, sin doesn't represent you anymore. Sin represented you in your old life. You were a sinner by nature. But now you have a new life, a new spirit. You've been born of the Spirit. And the Spirit doesn't operate in wickedness. He operates in righteousness. And this does not, sin cannot represent your new life in Christ. What represents your new life in Christ is killing sin. That represents your life now. You kill sin. You don't glory in it anymore. You don't try to sin more. You try to sin less. Like we say as Christians, we're not sinless, but we sin less. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus says, it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to unquenchable fire. Jesus says, I would rather you have one less hand than to show that you are actually a non-believer because you are so in love with your sin and go to hell. This is very strong language on Jesus' part. It's supposed to shock us. This is supposed to shock us. Jesus purposely does and says things like this occasionally to shock people awake. Like when he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He 
knew that would rub some people the wrong way. He knew that that would either repel people or it would cause them to further inquire because they want truth so badly. They say, Lord, tell us what you mean by that. I know you mean something and I know you're right and you're good. Tell me more. I want to understand more. I want to dig for more truth. Because as Peter said, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's better for us to be crippled because we're fighting sin so hard than to show we were never saved in the first place and go to hell. To the unquenchable fire. He gives adjectives to hell here. He starts to talk about it and he does not do that in uh, verse 46 when he mentions hell, but he does it again in, 40, in uh, 48 when he mentions hell there. But let's move on to verse 45 now because verse 43 was all about what you do, and now verse 45 is about where you go. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than two feet to be thrown into hell. Not only can what I do, of course, cause me to sin, where I go can also cause me to sin. You can be tempted by being in a geographical location more than you are in other geographical locations. You know that. And Jesus says, if you're going places even that cause you to sin, I would rather you cut your feet off than continue to do that. Of course, we all know, we're all different, but we all know what our triggers are. We struggle with different things. Even males and females are more prone to struggle with different things. And the Bible makes that clear, too. The Bible even shows that. Paul even lays out certain commands, even for certain women. He says, tell the women this. Tell the men this. You know what your triggers are. And you know that it would be very foolish of you to do certain things or go certain places thinking you're strong enough to overcome that temptation when you fall into it again and again and again. John Owen said, I believe it was John Owen. He's not going to come after me if I get his quote wrong, though. He's been dead for 400 years. But I will see him again one day, so I want to make sure I get his quotes right. But I believe it was him. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And then Jesus again describes hell a bit more for us in verse 48, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. That's actually a quote from Isaiah 66. More on that in just a second. But now, if your eye causes you to sin, now we're dealing with, with what you see. What you do, where you go, what you see. Jesus says, I would rather you pluck out your eyeball. Just graphic, just graphic. On purpose. On purpose. Jesus is trying to wake you up to your sin that is killing you because it's lying to you and saying, I'm not that bad. After all, it's not as bad as so-and-so. No one will even know 
Only we'll know. You've done it before. He reminds you, the devil, when tempting you, how good it will feel, but he always seems to leave out the guilt that you're ridden with after you do it. And if you're a believer, you know that flood of guilt that comes when you fall to temptation. We tend to forget it, though. I wish we could remember the guilt more than we remember the temporal pleasure, don't you? And some of you have. What will also motivate you to not sin is remember seeing Christ. Remembering that the smile on his face, making him happy, is better than making my flesh temporarily happy. Because it's always followed by guilt anyway. And repentance, if you're a true believer, you confess your sins I've been so mad at myself before for falling into the same trap again and again and again. I'm reminded of that verse about the dog returning to its vomit. And I say, that's me. And Jesus is saying, I would rather you cut off hand, cut off foot, pluck eyeball out of your face then ever sin again you'd do better in life crippled and without those sins I would rather you be maimed and crippled is what he's saying do you see the seriousness of sin here he's trying to wake us up to this church he's trying to wake Cohen Ezel up to these things who is a very slow learner unfortunately but a learner nonetheless because the Lord's been patient with me and the Lord's worked with me. And I can say, God's grace, I am closer to him and more like him than I was five years ago and then before five years before that and then five years before that. The trajectory has not been perfect for me, but it's always gone up. Why? Because I'm so awesome? No, because I have a patient Lord who loves me enough to speak hard truth to me. And help me see and get it through my dense head. But we will see that we can overcome our sins as our love for Jesus goes up. That's what's going to motivate you to do violence against your sin when you see it's hurting your relationship with him. That's what's going to motivate you to get rid of some of these things that maybe your flesh loves so much and maybe your flesh has been even addicted to for a long time. What's going to overcome them is not just don't, 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 but it's going to be don't because something better. Don't because something greater. Don't because a bigger joy. Believing in him, like he said at the very beginning, that's what's going to get you through this. Also know this. Not only can sin, sin cannot represent your new life in Christ. It can't. It's not supposed to. Know this also. Your sin damages the reputation of your Savior. Write that down, please. Your sin damages the reputation of your Savior. How many of you have met someone who was obviously giving you an excuse as to why he or she didn't come to church But their excuse was, well, I knew this guy or this girl who, 
was this big important person in the church and then he did this or she did this and that's why I don't believe in this stuff anymore. Of course, it's an excuse. Usually, it's a very convenient excuse to point at other hypocrites and say, well, because there's hypocrisy, there obviously cannot be real truth in the world. When I always like to point to, okay, I admit to you, that was hypocritical. But I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about Jesus. Always take it back to Jesus, okay? They, they, they throw something at you, and you just need to dodge it and get around it and then get right back to Jesus. Some people call it the Jesus juke. You know what a juke is in, in football where somebody's coming at you and you, you fake them out and then they go past you. All that energy that they're trying to get at you with and then they go right past you. I like to do the Jesus juke on people. They, they throw the argument at me and I just dodge it and I get right back to Jesus. <laughs> because that's really who their beef is with, is Jesus. They don't believe him. Your sin damages the reputation of your Savior, though. That's true. This is another reason why you need to do violence against your sin and see it for how serious it is. It hurts his reputation. You wouldn't do anything to hurt your mother's reputation, would you? You wouldn't. You wouldn't speak badly of her in public and make her look bad. Why? Because you love her, right? That's what's going to help you fight against sin. A great love for Jesus makes you fight this way. So I don't want to just come at you this morning and say, don't, don't, don't. That works for a while because that's how the Ten Commandments were. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. But remember, all those did for us is show us our guilt, right? That was the purpose of the law, to show us, but I've already broken those. The law was meant to point us to grace. So it's not just don't, don't, don't. It's don't because of this greater love that you have for your Lord. That's what shows actually that your faith is real. The fight. Listen to what Danny Aiken said. You might know Danny Aiken's the president at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in um, South Carolina. It says this. He said this. I love it. A saving faith is a fighting faith. It will engage the battle against sin with deadly seriousness. Very good. I don't know, but he may have been preaching on this portion when he said that. A saving faith is a fighting faith. It will engage the battle against sin with deadly seriousness. We agree with you. Jesus, Jesus says these things that also make us a bit uncomfortable. Because he almost makes it sound like you're, you're going to go to hell if you don't do these things. Now, I thought that when I come to know the Lord Jesus, put my faith and trusting him in him and what he did for me, having died, shedding his blood to take the punishment that sinners deserve, was buried, rose again on the third day, and did all that to procure salvation for everyone who would ever believe, 
I thought that once I put my faith and trust in what he did, having repented of my sins, that I was then granted eternal life, sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. I thought that was the case. What's this business about how hell is a, st- a still possibility here? I don't, I don't get it. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Listen to this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you, were, in, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Those who do not hold on to the truth, those who do not stay in the fight, show that they never actually believed. They believed in vain. They were not actually on the path. They were close. They were just walking beside the path pretty closely. They had not fully committed to walking the path. They looked as if they were on the path because they were, they were right there. But then we noticed they, they start to veer. So much so that they get lost in the woods and we can't even see them anymore. They've, they're lost in the darkness of the woods. And we say, what happened? They showed that they were never truly saved because they didn't stay in the way. And this is what Paul's talking about. This gospel that I preach to you, in which you stand, by which you're saved, if you hold fast to it. How do we show that we're saved? We show that we're saved by continuing to persevere in the faith. Our whole lives long. And notice I said persevere. Because once you get on that path, you have the hosts of darkness coming against you. You have the world against you. You're now fighting your flesh Bible says the spirit wars against the flesh. We now start a battle, unfortunately. But it's a battle that is a part of a bigger war. And Jesus has already won the war. Which is why we get down here to verses 49 through 50 where Jesus starts talking about salt and fire What's all this about? Look at verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire, he says. In verse 48, Jesus just ended talking about hell and the continual fire there. So using that, Jesus then mentions everyone will be salted with fire. So this seems like judgment talk. Salt was one of the only preservatives in Jesus' day. And fire was a purifier of precious metals and things like that, also in that day. Now, salt was also used on many of the animal sacrifices of the Jews. And fire was used to consume that offering. So let's take all this in. So when it comes to salt and fire and judgment and offerings, I found two quotes that really helped me with this. Listen to this. It says, Thus, all will be salted with fire in a manner consistent with their relationship to Christ. For unbelievers, it will be the perpetual fires of final judgment in hell. 
For the disciple, it will be the persevering and refining fires of trials and suffering that mark the road to true greatness. Just what we were talking about, right? The preserving and refining fires of trials and suffering that mark the road to true greatness for the believer. Fire as punishment for the non-believer. Fire as a refining purifier for the true believer. This is one reason why this testing is good and necessary for the Christian. These tests that you go through, they are meant to make you stronger. They're meant to help you fight. You're probably not even tested and tempted in some ways as you were 10 years ago as strongly anymore. You've grown past those things, things that would tempt you when you first got saved and that were real tests for you when you first got saved aren't really a big deal anymore. You've already learned from those and you've moved on. Why? Because the Lord's refining you. He's continuing to grow you. He's making you more and more like his dear son, Jesus Christ. And that should be encouraging to you. It should be encouraging to you that you don't struggle with the things that you struggled 10 years ago, perhaps 20 years ago, if you've been a Christian that long. I remember some things I used to struggle with as a new believer. I remember tithing used to be really, really hard as a new believer. I was like, oh, gosh. Oh, here. Oh, gosh. Put it in the offering plate. It's just like, oh, man, that hurt. It's like 10% of my paycheck. And now tithing is just normal. It's like, of course we tithe. Duh. I mean, I even had a brother once tell me, he said, don't you believe that if you're struggling financially, that God understands and, and doesn't require a tithe from you? And I said, brother, it would, it would be like cutting off my right arm if I didn't tithe. I would feel incomplete. I want to, like badly. It makes me feel complete and full to obey this commandment because I've seen the Lord be so faithful to provide for me every time we did it. He's helped me trust him. That's just one example. In my life, you could think of something in your life that you don't struggle with anymore 10 years, 20 years ago, perhaps. But if you're struggling with something now, aren't you? Guess what? Do violence against it. And in 10 and 20 years, maybe in 10 or 20 days, perhaps even, you will have grown past it. But it's going to take violence to get over some of your sins. If you're like, why do I keep struggling with this? I've been struggling with it for, for years. Have, have you been like really serious about fighting it? Well, no. I, I pray and ask God to help me stop. That's, that's a good start, okay? That's a good start. But be militant in killing sin by the Spirit. Militant. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson said about the salt and the fire and he says, unless we maintain the purity of our own lives, plucking out the eyes, etc., and are purified by the flames of testing and remain faithful to Christ, our lives will have no preserving influence on the corrupt world. It's good. Sin damages the reputation of your Savior, but righteousness represents your new life in Christ. 
and makes the kingdom work done at your hands, a preserving force for good. Let me say all that again. That was a long sentence. Sin damages the reputation of your Savior, but righteousness represents your new life in Christ and makes your kingdom work done at your hands, a preserving force for good. Remember what this is in the context of, too. Not only is Jesus wanting to, of course, teach the disciples one other portion of what true discipleship looks like, but he's continuing on with what he's already been teaching them and why he started teaching them this in the first place. Remember, since the disciples could not get along with each other, remember they were arguing about who's the greatest? And since they had trouble getting along with others outside the 12, remember they were trying to hinder another believer to stop doing his work because he was not a part of the 12. Jesus ends verse 50 saying this. He says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He ends with that. Why does he end with that? Well, because of what they've been going through. They couldn't get along with one another, couldn't get along with others. What's the source of peace? A holy life that loves God and hates sin. A holy life that loves God. Remember that, that, that greater love for God's got to be there. And that hatred of sin has to be there. And it will be. As your love for God grows up, your hatred of sin will also grow. But a, a holy life that loves God and hates sin, dedicated to following the Lord at his word, creates peace among men. It does. Jesus says so at the very end. And be at peace with one another. Listen to Psalm 119. We're going to end with this. Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. So the truth is, get serious about your sin and you will find great peace with God and with man. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths that you've given us, helping us see the seriousness of sin. I pray also, Lord, please help us to see how great, lovely, glorious, holy, faithful, trustworthy, loving, compassionate you are as we see how wonderful you are, this will motivate us to do more violence against our own sins, that we can enjoy more of you. And we thank you for your word. You use it as a preserving salt in our lives. And we're so grateful for that. Help us to walk in it today. In Jesus' name, amen.